0: Welcome to Pondering AI. I am your host, Kimberly Nevela. Thank you for joining us as we continue to ponder the reality of AI with a diverse group of innovators, advocates, and data professionals. Today we are joined by Paulu Carval. Paulu is a global tech executive and investor and fellow at Harvard's Advanced Leadership Initiative. We're going to be discussing safeguarding the public interest, policy, and politics in the age of AI. Welcome to the show, Paulu.
1: Hey, it's great to be here, and uh, thank you for the invitation.
0: Let's start with a quick recap of your professional journey through to your current roles and recent studies at Harvard.
1: Fantastic. So, first, a little bit of a personal perspective. I. I'm a Brazilian-American citizen. I've lived half of my life in the Global South, in Brazil, where I grew up and started my professional life, and the other half of my life here in the U.S., where I am also a U.S. citizen. I've uh, spent a long time, more than three decades, uh, in the technology business, uh, working for IBM, where I graduated from last year. Uh, I've been, for the last couple of years, an investor and a mentor and advisor to dozens of venture capital Startups, both in Brazil as well as uh, here in the US, and uh, spent the year here at Harvard as a fellow in the Advanced Leadership Initiative, where I'm focusing on technology and democracy, which is kind of the role that uh, social media, AI have had in the driving polarization, radicalization, and some potentially erosion of some of our democratic institutions.
0: And did that study come about just from personal interest or was it the result of some of the work that you have done before you graduated from IBM and in some of your venture capital work?
1: Yeah, no, I think it was mostly from a personal curiosity. Evidently, I've been, uh, uh, I've had a professional life in which I've helped clients implement those technologies, infuse uh, artificial intelligence in their business processes. But at the same time, in my personal relationships. I've seen friends and family go to some dark places and uh, start really changing their opinions. And that made me reflect what was going on, how much of this was just a societal phenomena, or if technology was playing a role into that. So I'd say it's kind of a little bit of a a mix of having had a professional career in the area, uh, but also uh, being infused in the reality that we live today.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the issues that artificial intelligence and the current systems that we are using bring to the fore when it comes to the public interest. And perhaps a good place to start is by defining the public interest as we will be discussing it here. What is the public interest?
1: Yeah. And uh, even before, if we may, even before we dive into the public interest, I think we need to take a step back and also reflect about the good. And I think this uh, set of technologies that we're talking about here have had a a massive transformative impact on society. They change the way we work, the way we interact, the way we frankly now create and generate knowledge. And that they can have a massive impact on productivity also, both personal productivity as well as business productivity, and it can add trillions of dollars to to the economy. So I think that there is an important component of the good that is associated to this and also how uh, it's been used to create social advocacy and mobilize political movements. So all of this is kind of the positive. But it also brings in itself some potential issues related to Biases, or uh, especially when we're talking about uh, generative AI, creating this false illusion of certainty, and uh, with that, making the spread of false information or misinformation, even if unintentional, a little bit more effective, and uh, and also it kind of lowers the bar in terms of the the cost for you to generate some of this bad impact Mm -hmm. if you have a nil intent. So I think it's important that we tackle the issue, looking at both both perspectives, not only some of the problems that we're dealing with, but uh, also some of what's very good about the technology, so that then we strike the balance, and this kind of begs the question of how did we get here and uh, what sh- we should do going forward. And public interest, basically, I uh, would start by thinking about uh, in the current model that we are today, primarily, we have built an attention economy uh, based on monetizing data and personal data that is considered public domain and that once worked and organized or processed by platforms becomes private property and uh, therefore can be monetized. And so this can potentially generate uh, a series of you know privacy issues and also not necessarily drive this in the overall public interest or the interest of society in general but address more profit interest of uh, you know large corporations or the dominant players in this space mm-hmm.
0: and there is an interesting dichotomy there because if you are using information that is in the public domain, and we are defining that as therefore public data, and you train your own systems on it. And then you're claiming that the information that comes out is now private. Is that the crux of the issue that you're talking about there? Because it seems a little off balance if we look at it from that perspective.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure it's the crux of the issue, but it's certainly one of the genesis. Of the issue, and what is interesting, if we look at the history of how we got here, it's not a coincidence that this has been litigated and uh, has been consciously operated through regulatory innovation, regulatory entrepreneurship, uh, sometimes uh, that is called, uh, so that this construct in which the personal data, the data that you and I generate, is public domain, and then once manipulated, once processed, it becomes private property. So. This is one of the foundations, if not the foundation for a data economy where you can then monetize through advertising this data that you processed and therefore became your property. So I think this is starting to look into that both from a privacy perspective as well as from a regulatory perspective or even antitrust perspective perspective maybe give us some kind of indication of uh, areas to look at as we pursue this balance, right, between fostering and accelerating innovation and uh, and at the same time kind of protecting ourselves against uh, some of these issues and protecting the public interest in general.
0: Mm-hmm. And again, it's not necessarily obvious, at least to me, that when folks are putting information out whether it's on the internet or sharing information for purposes of, of services, that they've intentionally exposed that to be sort of hoovered up in these mechanisms. You mentioned regulatory. I think you said entrepreneurship. I'm not sure if that's the same as <laughs> regulatory capture in a nice in a nicer way, um, or yeah, not. Uh, you can you can define those terms for us. But is part of the reason that that has happened is because we we didn't have a regulatory framework that was addressing these issues because we just really didn't necessarily back in the day predict or project what's happening now? Or is it just a whole mass of issues that have led to this?
1: You know, so I think there's a few layers for us to peel the onion here, right? So starting with the kind of the beginning of your comment in terms of whether when we make our data available if we're making a conscious decision Mm -hmm. to let that data be monetized right and there is an implicit trade-off that sometimes is a conscious trade-off sometimes is we're making that trade-off without being aware in which we can back to the good that comes with the technology we can get much enhanced services we can get benefits we can get a much improved experience if this experience is personalized to my needs your needs so it starts there. So there is this temptation that, quite frankly, I most of the times I fall into. That saying that who cares? I have nothing to hide, and <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I want the better experience. I want to make sure that the recommendations suit my needs. That the time estimates when I'm driving match my driving style, or the restaurant recommendations, you know, are in accordance with uh, my tastes, etc. And you're making on a daily basis, on a, sometimes on an hourly basis, uh, these, these trade-offs. But at the same time, you're not thinking about uh, kind of the aggregate, no pun intended, consequences of that and how this is being used for creating a profile of you that can not only be used to enhance your personal experience, but to then target you. And this targeting is where things may start to get a little complicated.
0: You've also said, I think one of your writings, in fact, I wrote it down. You were talking about one of the tensions that we're currently dealing with is some of not necessarily capitalism itself as a good or a bad, but some of the ideas of, of capitalism, where you said in the conception of capitalist progress, dominant winners are the path to innovation, which benefits us all. And that's in direct conflict with the view that monopolies, which a dominant winner would, in theory, be, leverage their power to deliver less value while extracting greater rents from consumers. Can you talk a little bit about about that statement and, and that tension? Is it just more of the same of what we've been talking about or does that touch on a, a different element?
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and I think some of these were quotes that I either was quoting or paraphrasing mm-hmm. kind of the likes of Peter yeah. Thiel and some of the other, other not investors, but academics in the in the area that uh, sh- show these two contrasting points of view and, and make that tension very explicit. And I think it's good to uh, going to back to the beginning of this conversation, going back to the beginning and see how we got here. And I think uh, there are three components that have driven this. One is uh, a mix of ideology and culture. Another one is around business model innovation. And then finally, very intertwined with this, uh, the funding of this business model and what has happened in terms of entrepreneurship. Uh, and I think back to culture and uh, ideology. I would go back to really the very beginning of uh, Silicon Valley in the late '60s and '70s, and it's a very different uh, w- world. There was a world in, you know, a lot of uh, tension, right? The cultural tension, uh, cultural revolution at the point in time, and the kind of the early days of the internet, the early days of what became eventually a computing revolution, et cetera, and the early days also of Silicon Valley were happening there, right? And that's, uh, that's been kind of the genesis of the hacking culture and, frankly, of uh, that, that still carries over uh, until today in a lot of this kind of libertarian streak that mm-hmm. permeates the valley, very, very focused on freedom and uh, self-determination. So let's say that at first, we, we have like a, this cultural and almost somewhat ideological streak where things started, right? Then fast forward, a few decades and get into our current millennium, we have seen kind of this data economy emerging that we were talking about. And uh, through, as we discussed, through litigation, through some of this regulatory capture or regulatory entrepreneurship, so it's a kind of creating regulation and therefore driving this in the form of capture, this construct in which personal data is common good, public good, and once processed, organized, it becomes private. Property And so this was the foundation for the attention economy uh, that we have today and uh, how platforms which monetize this data via advertising tend to try and maximize the time that you spend on the platform, which will generate all sorts of uh, other issues that we talk about. And then compounding this, this, some ideological streak and then some of the underpinnings of the of the business model, this has been financed primarily by venture capital, which has been a very homogeneous set of players, both the technologists as well as the investors, many of them that originally were technologists, they uh, are from a very homogeneous group, like from a racial and uh, ethnic and uh, gender uh, perspective, and uh, they have a focus on exponential growth, a focus. Sometimes with some blind spots to some ethical usage of technology, this focus on like the quotes on mon- monopolistic power of a uh, winner takes all mm-hmm. approach, uh, and uh, this was, I think, best capture in the you know Zuckerberg's motto of uh, "move fast and break and break things." Right, and so we've broken a few things.
0: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, hopefully, we're learning from that. So you're in a unique position because you are in the VC space. You are a venture capitalist. What is your perspective on the VC's role in the current AI hype cycle and, and hypering adoption of some of these newly emerging technologies, in some cases with very limited guardrails or understanding of the implications?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So first, as I mentioned at the beginning, I, I am a believer in the technology and I, I'm an, a believer in the economic and the productivity and some of the positive social impact of, of the technology. Now, mm-hmm. as we were just talking, we have broken some things. And you can pick your, your poison here, right? So from teenage and adult, also mental health issues to, you know, biases to political polarization. I'm not saying that uh, an AI-infused social media has been the only reason for this. We have many, many other societal issues uh, related to the topic, but they are certainly catalyzers for a lot of this, right? And this concept of winner-takes-all, very focused on advertising, monetization, and now this acceleration of uh, getting to kind of the current discussions on AI, an acceleration without safeguards, I think, is a problem. Right, that's a problem, and uh, may bring in itself the seeds of deceleration instead of acceleration. Because imagine if we hit some big issues related to this, and, and I, I'm not in the camp of existential yeah. safety issues that this will you know the paper clips will uh, kill humanity etc i'm not there but we have some clear present ethical issues that need to be addressed and also some decisions on uh, where to use The technology and and high risk applications, we can potentially generate problems. If this technology is being used to run a nuclear plant and things go awry, or if there's an issue with the power grid and you bring down a hospital for an extended period of time, so some more catastrophic event like this, you know, short of uh, exterminating humankind, happens. I think it's going to be bad for the industry, and so I am for. First, principles of ethical development of the technology, and there's a whole kind of generational shift and a lot that we can talk about education about uh, in this area. But I'm also about building those safeguards, which I know it's a little bit of an overused example, but I really like the example of the brakes in the Formula One car, right? We introduced fantastic brakes for race cars. This allowed drivers to brake very close to the turns and drive faster and with that reduce lap times. So I think the safeguards, I see safeguards and I see some level of regulation as a way to allow the technology to flourish and allow us to continue as investors, as technologists to drive the benefit. And
0: and so just to linger on that point for a moment, because certainly the regulatory landscape right now relative to AI is as active as it's ever been. We're just coming out of the back end here of some agreement with the EU AI Act and the Trilog. Mm -hmm. Still some work to be done there. But certainly you mentioned a little bit of this perhaps false dichotomy between regulation and innovation. And it seems to be just this endless debate, not just what and how much we should regulate, but that perceived conflict between those two elements. And what I hear you saying very strongly is, no, in fact, this doesn't need to be a negative tension. It it may very well be a positive tension. And is it fair to go so far as to say this could very much level the playing field while also making it possible for us to accelerate adoption safely? Yes. Okay. Now, there are a few different thoughts about how to approach the regulation and what we should be regulating. And one of those debates comes down to to grossly oversimplify, and then you can expand <laughs> for the edification of the audience, between are we regulating the technology itself, or are we regulating the risk posed by applications of the technology. Is that a fair simplification of, of that debate? And can you tell us a little bit more about the two sides of that discussion or those two perspectives?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. that's, uh, I think, is a, a good framework for us to look into into the problems. So it's uh, just to, to go back to where we started. Yes, mm-hmm. I think the regulation is and, and safeguards are, are important to to make sure that we continue moving fast, and uh, now when it comes to how we're going to do this, I'm in the camp that regulating the technology in itself is a fool's errand, and I think the best example for this is let's imagine that uh, you know over a long period of time we had this design, the perfect regulation, and announced it as of as of October of last year, just before the launch of ChatGPT, and uh, without including considerations for large language models and the generative AI, right? This would immediately be obsolete. And this will happen for uh, there, you know, several people already talking about what's coming next, et cetera. So I think in the the history of technology and especially when you look at the last 12 months, we've kind of proven that that's probably not the best uh, approach, right? And therefore, I, I do like construct in which you're looking at risk and use cases and uh, you're focusing more on the outcome that uh, the technology is driving and try and act upon that. And another potential advantage of that approach is that there is existing legislation that we can build upon uh, to do that. And I think over It's kind of one of those cases of what a difference a year makes, both from a technology perspective, but also from a regulation perspective. Because if we go back to 12 months ago, uh, it was a much more immature discussion about regulation, and the lines are very clear. It's almost as if there are like three uh, main approaches. Now, one, it's uh, what's going on here in the U.S., uh, the European approach and I would say like the china approach which is more of a kind of a state driven point of view that I, I don't think is something that would have any chance to be adopted here so i think having the debate about what's best from what we have seen with the us approach and the in the european approach can guide our next steps mm-hmm.
0: so what are the Maybe the commonalities isn't the right question. Maybe the question I should ask is what do you see as the strengths of those two approaches and what are the key differences? And feel free to throw yeah. China in there if, if you'd like for illustrative yeah. purposes. Yeah.
1: So maybe, maybe starting with China. So we spent, you know, not a lot of time in it, but the, at least to kind of put the frame there, it's like government, uh, you know, controlling it. It's state controlled Uh, approach to most of, if not all, the economic activity, it aligns with a national development plan, which, by the way, it's only kind of a a national development plan, quote-unquote. It's already (laughs) kind of a little bit uh, anathema to the way we do do things here. But one may say that uh, if your objective is uh, to advance your country from uh, strictly national development... It may be an effective way of doing it, which, uh, by the way, I recommend that we just don't simply dismiss the existence of uh, of this approach because, yes, things are going to happen in Europe and things are going to happen here in the U.S., but there's a whole global south that is there, and it's w- looking at these three models and uh, may say that, you know what, I don't mind taking an approach like China's taking and have like a government-controlled model, which uh, – can be very problematic from a human rights perspective and and could stifle innovation, right? So that's, I would say, these are the probably main, in a very oversimplified way, uh, characteristics of uh, how China is approaching the problem. And I I just would only recommend that we do not dismiss it because there are other players outside of the US and Europe that uh, might be observing this. And uh, then uh, going back to... uh, You know, comparing and contrast Europe and US, I think first we need to acknowledge and recognize that uh, we have very different constitutions, either for the European Union or in the United States. Mm -hmm. We have very different uh, legal systems and uh, we have very different societal norms and a kind of a normative set of values between the two continents or parts of the world. And whenever considering what to adopt and how to adopt and implement, I think this, these components are are very important because at the end of the day, it's, uh, if this was a black and white subject, we wouldn't be having uh, so many discussions. So <laughs> there are a lot of kind of gray areas in which you will have to make normative mm-hmm. calls based on what your society wants to happen. So in the U.S., uh, it's a very laissez-faire uh, type of approach. It is centered around uh, freedom of speech and our First Amendment, you know, going back to how we managed social media, Section 30, and all the things that uh, have or have not worked in the web tool era. And uh, it's also a bit more industry-centric approach, right? And what I mean by industry-centric is uh, maybe given the fact that most of the very large platforms are here in the U.S. or in China, or uh, very few nascent ones now in Europe. So it's a little easier or maybe appropriate for the U.S. to defer a little bit more to the industry. The U.S. is one country only, so it's uh, easier for you to have a discussion about how to implement this also in an all-country basis, despite all of the discussion about uh, what will happen in each one of the states. But it's very different than operating across multiple countries in the European Union. And so that's kind of the way I see the U.S. And and I wouldn't discount the fact that leveraging the industry, it can be beneficial, right? So you, you want to be mm-hmm. super attentive to not betting everything on self-regulation, being conscious of the potential and, and more than the potential, the temptation for regulatory capture. But the reality is that a lot of the expertise is in the industry. So they're, they're positive reasons why you should be looking into this, right? Now, with Europe, on the other hand, so starting with the uh, normative principles, the government society, while we focus on freedom of speech here, they focus there primarily on privacy and human rights or dignity. So not that we don't have a focus on this here, but it's a question of priorities, right? So it starts from from that perspective, they've introduced this concept of a uh, risk-based regulation. So let's remind ourselves that the EU Act that just got preliminary approval on the trilogues, it's been proposed. I think it was like early 2021. So it's been like kind of a long journey to get into here. So it's risk-based, it's more centralized. I like certain features that have come out from this trilogue agreement including some innovation in, in regulation, which which was the creation of uh, areas where you can, and they're announcing the first one in Spain, uh, simulate uh, or run the technology in a less exposed environment and with that design safeguards. So I think there's a lot of good innovation there, both in terms of risk and uh, some innovation in the regulation itself. In addition to that, the just third point that is very important there is very inclusive in terms of Creating elements for inclusion of academia, civil society, and industry in the deliberation process. However, it can be very heavy and very cumbersome. So it builds upon kind of what happened with GDPR for data protection and privacy and uh, has a very, very heavy set of institutions that are being created that will enforce the mechanisms, right? So I think it's how do we thread the needle. To now, especially as we move into the final stages of uh, approving the European legislation, but also potentially codify some uh, legislation here in the U.S. to pick of what was the best in the executive order that was announced a couple of months ago here in the U.S. and this kind of a preliminary agreement on the European AI Act.
0: Do you think that this is fundamentally requiring a new? regulatory approach or framework or institutions? Or when you say we can thread the needle, are there existing foundations we should be drawing on rather than just trying to reinvent the wheel here?
1: Yeah, in the, I'll go back to what a difference a year makes, right? At the beginning of the year, we were dealing with Gonzalez v. Google going to the Supreme Court here in the U.S. And also... Not a lot of clarity in terms of how to tackle the issue.
0: And I'm sorry to interrupt. For folks who aren't familiar, can you give a, just a quick description of what that case was all about?
1: Yeah, yeah. So fundamentally, in the, the, sorry that uh, we've been using this term Section 230 like freely here, <laughs> but uh, this is a piece of legislation of something that... Uh, was called the Communications Decency Act from 1996. And uh, most of the act has is no longer in effect, with the exception of Section 230 of the act, which basically, for one of the things that has gone to the Supreme Court, it provides a complete liability shield for Internet platforms as it relates to third-party generated content. So, if you picture yourself being, say, YouTube owned by Google or Facebook, Instagram, etc., whomever, right? Whatever platform, most of the content that is there is third party generated content, content that you and I are generating. And under Section 230, the platforms have a liability shield. So they're immune from any liability related to the content that uh, any of us have posted there. So the case, and I'm, I'm really super simplified here, but the, the cases that have gone to the Supreme Court in like, I think it was February timeframe, were basically a challenge to that model. Gonzalez v. Google was an unfortunate terrorist attack that happened in France that killed uh, an American student that was there. And the family was suing, saying that YouTube had played a role and kind of radicalizing the factions leading to that uh, ISIS, in this case, leading to that, that event. And the Supreme Court punted, basically, right? They said that uh, they were not in the position to rule and moved the subject back to Congress. That frankly, mm-hmm. I think it's where, where it belongs, right? And the whole discussion about uh, Section 230 and this liability shield, this is also, you can see both sides of it. Because on one hand, it can give the platforms like a free pass to go and do whatever. But also imagine if we start restricting speech there, most likely whenever you have uh, restrictions to free speech, the first communities or the first populations to be affected are minorities or underrepresented populations. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people from uh, the civil liberties side were are for the maintenance of uh, Section 230. So going back then to uh, what a difference a year makes, we went from uh, a very narrow discussion of platform liability for, as it relates to third-party generated content to a much, much broader discussion now in the context of artificial intelligence, as we can see in the executive order that the White House announced in uh, late October, and the European Union AI Act, in which there is a uh, much greater degree of maturity on how to tackle the issue, much more involvement of uh, society at large. And it is being now codified in Europe, and we need to make that decision on how much of this we're going to codify in the U.S., or if it will be a set of voluntary commitments as the ones that have been announced here in the U.S. earlier in the year. Mm
0: -hmm. Some of the interesting points, and this may also exist in the executive order here in the States, it does take a risk-based approach. Mm -hmm. And the question that still raises to some extent is, does that preference organizations running out to try things and then asking for forgiveness if the outcomes or the risks that result are too high or too harmful Mm -hmm. versus really being methodical in, I don't want to say asking for permission, but in thinking through that and and not sort of progressing down that path. And there's a secondary component of that, which I think it has now categorized certain models of a certain size, which implies something about an assumed capability just because the model is of set size as opposed to the application of the model. Yes. Do you see that as a contradiction in terms or does that make sense?
1: I think it is a little bit of a contradiction, but it is back to that discussion of, I think we all wish this was a very black and white area. And I feel this is a very honest attempt at striking a balance, right? Will it be perfect? Uh, No, it's not going to be perfect. You just hinted upon some of the issues that we can uh, raise related to this. They say, so the proof will be in the pudding and in the implementation that the act will be adaptable into the future. Like, for example, size of models measured on the flops that are used to train the model, mm-hmm. et cetera, is something that can be retrofitted, et cetera. So I, I would encourage us to take a step back and look more at the large lines and the framework that are implicit there than necessarily like pick a fight with each one of the details back to, we're not going to get 100% of the details right, but this is probably the best attempt so far in trying to strike this balance. And if you look at what they're trying to do is, first, they have created this more horizontal concept of uh, being risk-based and different categories of risk, Mm -hmm. including some very high-risk situations in which they're saying these things are just simply prohibited and are not going to be permitted in any of the European Union countries. And that's when you also get into the, a normative judgment, right? It's like, for example, biometrics uh, and face recognition, etc., are elements in which they're being very explicit in saying that they're not going to be permitted in, in Europe. And we're not saying that biometrics are necessarily going to exterminate the human race, right? But it is a normative judgment based on privacy on whether we want this or not. So first, this kind of a horizontal way of looking at risk and and identify certain categories that are going to be prohibited. The other one, which was, I think, a late-breaking use as an outcome of the Trilogs, were a few of uh, these law enforcement exemptions, which was something that I don't think existed before. But going back to some of these technologies, including face recognition, etc., they are including exemptions saying that in extreme cases, including terrorism and uh, a very kind of a loosely defined serious crime prevention, these technologies are going to be permitted. But again, looking at this more from a framework perspective, this degrees of risk, certain exemptions for specific areas and then getting into areas like transparency and fundamental rights in which you're going to uh, make sure that these models have a degree of transparency how we're going to enforce that how we're going to engage with the industry to have a discussion about that another kind of late-breaking conversation that frankly was as far as i understand the reason why there was a kind of a last minute delay was this uh, conversation about uh, general purpose. AI systems and foundation models where we get into these definitions of, of the size of the company, trying to use the size as a proxy for risk and also there was a lot of discussion about uh, how to protect national champions, kind of on my word, like a Mistral in France uh, where there's been a, a lot of discussions about uh, them recently. And then finally on this uh, in the bucket of Regulatory innovation, they created this whole, uh, what they call the governance architecture with the AI office, a scientific panel that will have external experts to advise this and, and an AI board, an advisory forum. So in a sense, it is, again, kind of a, a honest attempt of including as much of civil society as possible, but at the same time, a very convoluted, structure on uh, how you're going to enforce this across all of these institutions and multiple countries, right? So we'll see. And uh, as, as this moves from preliminary agreement to final law, what will happen? But I, I think it is it is important to look at it as, as a framework and then start to pick the best pieces of it.
0: And we should certainly, I feel, safe, sane preference, some progress over perfection, and also understand that there is a level of uncertainty that no regulation will ever be able to remove. So certainly the things that we can reasonably project, we should be testing the things that we can tax our imaginations to project or predict, we can we can put some safeguards. But regulation in and of itself is not a silver bullet. I think you've said this as well. And regulation, we can't regulate our way completely out of this. We way back at the start of the conversation talked a little bit about people's awareness and their ability to have agency, engage, and even just be mindful. But it does seem that we are not arming the collective enough with the information they may need to be able to participate either as just active participants in this, this economy that's being developed and in the digital world, but also to ask the right questions. What role does education play moving forward and how are we doing on that today?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And thank you for, for going there. Cause I think this is you're you're right on. So first Regulation is not a silver bullet. Regulation will never be perfect. And there is this trade-off of how to do it right so that you do not damage innovation. But it starts with developing critical thinking. So going back to the discussion of the trade-offs that daily we're making in terms of experiencing an enhanced service versus privacy, we need to be cautious of that. And I'm a believer, frankly, that... uh, children are going to be our best defense against a lot of these problems. Mm. So on one hand, they potentially are the most exposed victims for some of the evil that can come with these technologies, but they can be our best line of defense. As long as we develop in them digital literacy so that they understand what tools uh, should be used for so that they are aware of uh, some of the dangers and some of the trade-offs. And they start to become, over time, more aware of the ethical decisions that need to be made because the children of today are going to be the developers, the regulators, the investors of the future. And we have a chance to educate now a generation not only in a lot of these multidisciplinary skills that are needed to uh, Develop the technology, but also apply normative judgment and/or create law that will regulate this technology. But to do the right thing, so I uh, and I think I even wrote a piece about this that I'd rather be an optimist than a cynic. I don't think that we have the answers uh, for a lot of the questions, but the excellent news is that we're starting to ask the right questions. If in addition to this. We educate future generations that are going to be the ones in charge just a few years from now. I think we can have a much better future.
0: So as part of educating that future generation, I say future as they're growing up around us at the moment, not just better technical or digital literacy. Is this also about the ability to have a nuanced discussion to ask better questions, to be able to engage in a conversation with an understanding that there is not going to be a single right answer or opinion. That seems to be something we're not really good at today, at least in in the public sphere.
1: There's a skill of holding two truths at the same time in your head that seems to be like a disappearing skill, right?
0: So if you were directing the educational agenda, what are just the key components you think we should be incorporating into that agenda, and then what could we be doing as folks in the industry or just civilians today to help promote that literacy and that education?
1: Yeah. So uh, I want to preface this by saying that school systems, especially here in the United States, and I dare to say around the world, are already overloaded. So it's a huge challenge just in terms of uh, trying to put yet another societal responsibility on the laps of, you know, completely overwhelmed and underpaid teachers, right? So let, let me start there. But uh, putting that aside for a brief moment, I'd say first, I feel that we need to be almost like bilingual. Uh, we have had a, a, a moment in which we put extreme focus on STEM education. I'm In a sense, I'm a product of that. I'm an electrical engineer. But we need both STEM as well as a very solid liberal arts education to deal with some of these societal issues. Going back to, well, I think, where we started, my personal journey this year, I arrived here thinking that we can't combat a lot of the evils in technology with technology. Let's use tech to uh, do content moderation, and data provenance, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. And Very quickly, uh, you figure out that there are many other legal, societal, political kind of issues associated to that. So the first element is this, the emphasis on like a bilingual or bimodal education that will blend STEM skills, computer science, engineering, software engineering, etc., also with the political science, economics, uh, you know, law, etc. It's, it's a very different approach when you're talking about now higher higher education. Right. Now, in K-12, to which is where we have this group of very overwhelmed public schools and, and teachers, especially here in the U.S., it's uh, I think it's also very important to have an age-appropriate curriculum. Evidently, the way you treat or expose a 5-year-old or a 17-year-old to some of these topics is radically different. I would go as far as to say that maybe below 10, we should... Avoid exposing them to a lot of this uh, technology, but having an age-appropriate curriculum that uh, first develop basic skills for critical thinking, for civil disagreement, for intellectual curiosity, then really create that foundation, and then invest in digital literacy, and uh, maybe not necessarily creating tech-specific curricula, but uh, in- infusing. Some of the technology in the existing curricula, right? So starting early and uh, creating these bilingual, or multimodal higher education skills, I think we'll have a, we'll have a better chance. As I said, I think we're starting to ask the right questions.
0: Excellent points and a very optimistic. Yeah, pragmatic take, which I definitely appreciate as someone who can definitely veer towards cynicism. I will, I will have to admit. So thank you so much, paulo I really appreciated your time today and your insights into what is a very fluid and multifaceted space. Thanks again.
1: Thanks a lot, Kimberly. It was awesome to be here with you guys today.
0: All right, so to continue learning from thinkers such as Palu about the real impact of AI on our shared human experience, subscribe now.